I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You know, one of my favorite things whenever meeting a new couple is to ask them how they met. And the most interesting thing, it's always fascinating to watch first, who, who's the first one that responds, right? Which of the couple is the first one to begin answering? And then second, how long will it be until the other one interrupts to tell their side of the story, right? I mean, this is how it always goes. How'd you guys meet? Then it unfolds, right? One starts, the other interjects, right? This is every couple experiences something like this. For example, uh, Caitlin and I, uh, often, uh, when asked, how did we meet? I'll start off and I'll talk about one of the very first times that I remember having a, an intentional interaction with each other. And I, I remember I had just left uh, school, the, the grad school that we went to, and I was crossing the street when I was suddenly startled by the sound of a voice behind me calling, okay, Drew. And I turned around and there she was. What is going on? And it's usually about this point that Caitlin chimes in and says, hey, I, I got to say, I got to explain what exactly was going on, right? Why I just sort of called out his name out of nowhere, because that's what it felt like to me. And she, you know, said it wasn't out of nowhere, right? You know, and then the story unfolds from there, right? Everyone has an experience like this if you're telling the story, whether it's a couple or, or friends, because there's never just one story, Right? If you want to know how a couple really met, there's always two stories, right? There's always two perspectives on that story. Another thing that I'm fascinated by is the movie industry's obsession with remakes, right? I mean, it seems like every year a new movie comes out that's really just an old movie remade. Uh, so, if, you know, on the one hand, you might say that Hollywood has just run out of ideas. So all they can do is just sort of recycle and, and reuse their old stuff. But, but on the other hand, I actually think a lot of these movie remakes are, are really creative and actually full of, of a lot of really new and, and fresh and, and interesting ideas. Most notably, recently, is Disney, right? I mean, they're taking all of their classic cartoons, and they've recently been remaking them all into live-action movies. And the remakes are never quite as enchanting as the original, but I'm always excited to see how they're going to retell the story, right? What, what are they going to do, right? Because they always end up digging a little bit deeper, into some of the characters. They go a little bit deeper into the story as they retell it. For example, a couple years ago in Aladdin, right, they dig a little bit deeper into Jasmine's experience of, of being a princess, right? In, in, in Beauty and the Beast, they tell a little bit more of Belle's childhood backstory. You know, on and on it goes. And once again, we see that, well, there's never just one story, right? Stories are worth retelling. Because every time you tell it, something new and something a little bit deeper comes out. And the very same thing is true of God, right? The Apostles' Creed that we've just started kind of reflecting on and talking about begins not with one word about God, but two words about God. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, right? God the Father, 
Almighty. From the very start, we see that God is both Father and Almighty. He is creator of both heaven and earth. One word is not enough. So the early Christians used two words to summarize this teaching about who God is. God is Father, and God is Almighty. And it's not only this creed that begins this way. The Bible itself begins not with one story about God, but two stories about God. Whenever Scripture opens to tell us this story of God creating heaven and earth, it doesn't only give us one perspective, it actually gives us two perspectives. We have Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And with these chapters held together, it's sort of like a couple sharing their story, right? One of them shares, and then the other one begins to speak up. Or like a movie being remade, the story retold, right? Holding Genesis 1 and 2 together, we see a fuller picture of who God is. So if you have your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 1, page number 1, all right? We're going to look at these two chapters today as we reflect on God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I'm not going to read the entirety of both chapters. We'd be here quite a while if we did that, but I'll read a little bit from each. Uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and I'll kind of fill in the gaps a little bit with some, some summary. All right, so let's begin with Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And then on the second day, God said, let there be space between the waters above and the waters below. And on the third day, God said, let the water below be gathered into one place so that dry ground appears and let the ground produce vegetation. Then on the fourth day, God said, let there be lights in the sky, sun, moon, and stars. On the fifth day, God said, let the water below and sky above be filled with fish and with birds. On the sixth day, God said, let the land be filled with creatures of all kinds, including let us make mankind in our image, male and female. God creates them. And then down in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. In 2 verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all 
his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the first story we have of creation. But then there's another story, almost like whoever was telling that first one gets interrupted by someone else ready to say, but wait, there's more, right? Like a movie remake, the same story, but a different perspective. I look down at verse five. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. No plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth. There was no one to work the ground. Streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he formed. And then look down to verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, for this man, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And so the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you that we can come to you as Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the creed begins by describing God as Father and Almighty. Just like the Lord's Prayer that we prayed this morning begins by addressing God as our Father in heaven, right? And, and we've just seen that Scripture itself opens by offering a couple of different perspectives on God who creates heaven and earth. Now, let me give you a couple of big theology words that, that might help us as we kind of reflect on these ideas, and, and then we'll dig into the passage a little bit more deeply. The theology words that I want to kind of reflect on it, are, are these— 
God is transcendent. God is imminent. Transcendence and imminence. All right? Uh, transcendence, okay, is this idea that God is above and beyond all things. The Psalms, for example, say things like God is exalted above the heavens. And it says the Lord is the great king above all, right? Isaiah says that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. In the New Testament, at the end of Romans 11, Paul bursts out saying, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths are beyond tracing out. So God is transcendent, right? He is above all things. He is beyond all understanding. This is who God is. But God is also imminent, right? Imminence is the idea that God is not only above and beyond his creation, but also with and within his creation. And so again, the Psalms declare, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist asks, where could I flee from your presence? I, I could go up to the heavens and you were there. I could make my bed in the depths and you are there. Again, Isaiah says of God, I created you and formed you. And, and I, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And then again, in Romans, Paul proclaims, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So throughout Scripture, we see both God's transcendence and eminence. We see that God is both above and beyond all things, but also with and within all things. And this is exactly what we see as we look in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So let's dig into these just a little bit more, all right? Genesis 1, right? We are so familiar with these words. God said, let there be light, and there was light, right? And this is the pattern all throughout Genesis 1. The recurring refrain is, and God said, followed by, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And the image all throughout Genesis chapter 1 is that of God as a powerful king, a ruler who issues commands and they're immediately fulfilled. God issues these commands of creation and they're immediately obeyed and come to fruition. Right? This is the part of the creed that says God is almighty. In fact, that is literally what the word almighty means. The original Greek that the, the creed was written in, uh, this word is pantocrator, all right, which means ruler of all. The first part, panto, is the root word pan, right, which means all. Uh, we use it in a word like a, a panoramic picture, right, where you can, can sort of see all of, of what's in front of you. Uh, the second part, the word krator, has that root word krat, which means ruler. 
And we see it in our own modern words to describe government, a democracy is ruled by the people. An autocracy is ruled by one person, right? So pantocrator means all ruling, ruler of all, almighty, right? This is what we believe about God. And this is precisely what the early Hebrews are describing in Genesis 1. God is the great king who rules over all. All he has to do is speak, and it happens. And they told this story of creation directly to combat these other creation stories that were floating around in other cultures and other religions, other people. Because you see, for other ancient people, the sun and the sea were gods in and of themselves. But not so, say the ancient Hebrews. Our God created the sun and the sea. Still, other ancient religions claimed that creation came about because of some kind of great cosmic struggle between the many gods. But not so, say the ancient Hebrews. Creation was not a struggle for a god. He merely spoke, and it was so. God is a great king, ruler of all. And then at the very end of this story of creation, there is rest. I love that this day of rest is rooted in the almightiness of God. And I think this may actually be the most important part of the story for us today. Because today we are not tempted to believe that the sun or the sea is a god Right? For us today, uh, we're, we're not tempted to think that the world came about because of some great cosmic battle between the gods. Right? That, that's not something that, that we've ever been tempted to think. Rather, today, the temptation is to believe that we are the ones who are keeping the world turning. The temptation today is to think that if we stop working, well, then everything's going to fall apart. We are tempted to believe not in, in all kinds of other gods, but rather we are tempted to believe that we are God. And so the act of resting and the later commands to keep the Sabbath is really an invitation to trust in God who is almighty, not ourselves. Right? Rest is an act of trust that when we stop, the world keeps spinning. Whenever we take a break, the world's going to be just fine. When our efforts stop, God is still in control. And really, that was true all along. That's what rest is all about. God is almighty. He is creator of heaven and earth. So we stop and rest and worship the ruler of all who is worthy of our praise. And this image of rest really is the perfect transition into the next story 
that we find in Genesis 2. Because our rest is not only an opportunity to worship God, who is almighty, but also an opportunity to rest in the love of God, who is our Father. And this is the picture that we see all throughout Genesis 2. Right? It's not so much a picture of a powerful king, but rather an attentive caretaker. It's like a father or a mother personally tending to the needs of their child. Throughout Genesis 1, we see God create through powerful command. But in Genesis 2, we see God create through personal touch. In verse 7, God reaches down and forms humanity out of the ground like an artist sculpting with clay. In verse 8, God plants a garden. You can just imagine him, right? Planting things and patting down the soil all around it. Some of you guys know exactly what that feels like. This is what God is doing. And then God places the man in the garden, and you can just imagine God gently setting him down there. But then God does not walk away and leave the man alone. Rather, God continues to pay attention to him, continues to be attentive. And in verse 18, he says, oh, it's not good for this man to be alone. Right? He's paying attention to how this how his creature is doing. And so again, God sculpts out of the ground all kinds of creatures for this man to befriend. And yet no suitable helper is found. So God causes the man to fall asleep, performs a sort of delicate surgery to create woman from the man's side. And throughout this chapter, God constantly acts out of loving attention like a loving parent, an attentive caretaker. God forms the man, then plants a garden to provide for the man, then forms animal companions for the man, and finally creates the ultimate companion for the man. Each step of the way, God is portrayed as a loving, attentive, and generous provider and caretaker. And this is what it means for God to be Father. Now, we do see this image of God as Father or Mother in the Old Testament, right? We see it here in Genesis 2, but elsewhere, God is described as the Father of Israel. Isaiah describes God giving birth to Israel like a mother. The psalm that we read together this morning, we, we saw that God has compassion on his children like a father has compassion on his children. Elsewhere uh, in the psalms, we, we see uh, it's described being with God is like a weaned child with its mother. Psalm 131. Right? And so we have this parent imagery all throughout the Old Testament. But this imagery of God as a loving parent becomes primary for Christians. It is intensified in the New Testament. Notice that the creed places Father before Almighty. Or similarly, the Lord's Prayer 
begins with our Father, then in heaven, right? This caring Father image is primary for Christians. And it's because this is the primary image that Jesus uses to describe God. Jesus describes God as a father who gives food for the birds. God is a caretaker who clothes the flowers with beauty. God is a father who gives good gifts to his children. One of Jesus' most famous parables is of a father who does not only welcome his wayward son back home, but lavishly celebrates his return with a great feast, right? And this is the kind of father that God is. A loving, kind, generous, gracious, lavish, attentive, caretaking father. This is who God is. Now, I do want to say a couple things about this image of God as father. Because some may wonder, wait, why father? Why all of this masculine language? What, what's going on with that? And as early as the 4th century, there was a theologian and church leader named Gregory of Nazianzus who addressed this question. He, he explains that father is not meant to describe God's gender, but rather God's relationship. He said, we accept the realities without being put off by the names. When we are talking about God, it is not the gender of the word that matters, but the meaning of the word, right? And this is even more relevant in other languages that give every noun a gender, male or female. Some of you have studied other languages, you, you know that, right? And so it's, it's not the gender of the word that matters, but the meaning of the word. But, right, this, this may actually be even more problematic for some people. Because for some, the meaning of the word father is not kind or loving. Rather, it's harsh or demanding. Or maybe just passive and absent. This is where a little bit of history can actually be helpful, I think. Historian Justo Gonzalez describes how in the first few centuries in Roman culture, there was not an emphasis of fathers as being loving caretakers. Rather, in the Roman culture, fathers were seen as authoritative masters in their households, known as the paterfamilias, right? And they ruled over their servants, their children, even over their spouses. And this is the context, by the way, that Paul speaks into when he tells husbands to love their wives, when he tells fathers not to provoke their children, when he tells masters to actually care for their servants. See, Paul actually speaks against the grain of Roman culture whenever he gives those commands. And it's in this very same cultural context that the Apostles' Creed speaks. The Apostles' Creed speaks right into this. Justo Gonzalez observes, when seen in this context, 
the naming of God as Father both affirmed the power and authority of God and also limited the power and authority of earthly fathers, the paterfamilias. Right? He goes on to say that for early Christians to confess this creed is to say, I may be a slave or a wife who in my culture is ordered to be submissive to the head of my household, but I now belong to another household with a very different and much more powerful head. So the point is this. For those with fathers or, or mothers who caused harm or hurt, knowing God as father, as, as a parent, is not saying that God is like that parent who failed you. But rather, it is saying that that parent failed you because they were not like God. That is failure because God is so much better. The good news of the gospel is that we have a father who will not fail us. And no matter how dysfunctional of a family we might come from, there is a new family that we can belong to, where we can find healing and hope. This is what it means to believe in God as Father. So we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. A God who is both transcendent and imminent. God who is both above and beyond, but also with and within. And so I want to ask you this morning, which of these characteristics of God do you need most in your life right now? Maybe life feels crazy and chaotic, out of control, and so we would do well to remember that God is almighty. He is ruler over all. And so even amidst chaos, we can be at rest. Or maybe if life just feels kind of boring and monotonous, and, you know, the last 12 months have felt like the same day over and over again. And if that's true, we would do well to remember that God is a Father who is near us in all things, even those boring moments of life, and we can find rest in Him. Or perhaps what we really need most especially during these challenging days of, of despair. What we need most is to hold these two together. God is Father Almighty. Right? No matter what difficulties come our way, God's love is mightier, stronger even than death. That, after all, is the story of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus shows us both the love and the power of God all at once. He is Father who did not abandon his Son, 
And he is almighty, who can overcome even death. May we rest in that truth. Amen.